Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. This is Kat. And I am lucky enough to have both my co-hosts with me today, Haley. Hi. And Tress. Hello. And we are at episode four of our um, second season. We just finished the three-part series on the Black Dahlia and Elizabeth Short, and we're hoping that you have, uh, that you enjoyed it, that you listened to it. If you did or didn't, or you have any comments, please message us. Again, our website is hauntinghistorypodcast.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I forgot what other platform. Facebook, at Haunting History Podcast, you can just do a search, and we hope that we get, you're getting used to our new logo, and if you've listened to the, all three uh, parts of the series, you've seen the logo, and hopefully commented and told us what you thought of it, if you like the old one better, if you like the new one better, what your thoughts are. And today we are going, oh, and we have a new Patreon page that we have five different levels of tiers and one of them or two of them, I think two or three of them include our bloopers. So if you're interested in that, visit our Patreon page. We're going to have exclusive content for just our members only. So please check that out. It's Haunting History at, um, if you go to Patreon, the patreon.com and search Haunting History Podcast to make sure you have podcast in there. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, and I, I need to ask Tress and Haley. I know Tress has heard of it because she's been doing a little bit of the paranormal research on this story, but I don't. I don't know if you've heard. It. Did you? First of all, Tress, for the it's the Velisca ask ask. It's the Velisca axe murders. Now you are looking at the paranormal site, like the paranormal information about it and what people have said about it, but. How, do you know the story, too? No, I do not. Oh, you didn't? No. So you just read just the paranormal stuff? Yes. But you had to know a little, you had to hear a little bit about the family. Just yeah, reading them. that, it gives you a little bit of history of the family, okay. but hey, I did, didn't know about it until we started researching it. Did Have you heard of it, Haley? No, I haven't heard of it at all. You never heard of it? Mm-mm. It's, uh, it's, it's actually a really sad story. It's a lot like this. Um, I mean, it's not really like the Sauter family. The Sauter family, I still believe, if you've listened to our episode on the Sauter family, I still feel like that story can somewhat be resolved. I mean, we'll probably never find who did it, but um, the part of that story could still be resolved with DNA. And I hope that someone someday does the DNA on that so they can figure out some part of that story. Unfortunately, with this story, the Velisca axe murders DNA wouldn't help us. And uh, it's one of the... I want to say it's probably the uh, most famous unsolved crime of Iowa. This were in Iowa this time. In a town called Villisca. And I'll, I'll just go ahead into the story and then um, you guys just ask questions as we go along. Sometime after midnight on June 10th, 1912, approximately 106 years ago. And I, I didn't want to say 106 years ago because we always get our math wrong. It's 1912. 1912. What did I say? 106 years ago. Sorry, oh, did I say 1912 though? Mm-hmm. That's right, but for some reason we have problems with numbers. I know. So it, this happened on June tenth, nineteen twelve. So it was about one hundred and six years ago, right? One hundred and seven. What? Well, well, it will be one hundred and seven in this June. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know why I'm always a year off. I like mm-hmm. maybe because I'm always making myself younger. So I do that with like everything. Um, sometime after midnight on June tenth, nineteen twelve, an unknown person or persons entered the home of the Moore family. The home located at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca, Iowa, and violently ended the lives of eight people. Josiah Moore, who was 43, his wife Sarah Montgomery Moore, 39, 
their children Herman, 11, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, Paul, 5, and sadly, two neighbor children who were Lena Stillinger, 12, and her sister Ina, who was only 8. The murder soon became known as the Velisca Axe Murders and started what would become the most notorious murders in Iowa history and remains unsolved to this day. On the night before the murders, which was Sunday, June 9th, the family attended what was called the Children's Day Service at the Presbyterian Church. Accompanying them were Ina and Lena Stillinger. Apparently, um, Sarah had called the Stillinger parents and asked if the girls could go with them to this event at the church and to spend the night with the family and then just go home in the morning because she knew it was going to be late. And so they, um, the parents said, yeah, that's fine. They could go. And they went to this event. And then Sarah was the co-director, and her children performed at the little program that they did. And they did speeches and recitations. And the service ended with a mingling, a social thing, that lasted until at least 9.30 p.m. The family walked the three blocks home and ended the night with cookies and milk before retiring to their beds. According to a reconstruction attempted by the town coroner the next day, the murderer entered the house, and they do know the door was unlocked. It was a small town. It was 1912. They didn't lock their doors. Mm -hmm. The murderer entered the house, took an oil lamp from a dresser, removed the chimney, and placed it out of the way under a chair. He bent the wick into to minimize the flame and lit the lamp. It was turned down so low that it cast only the faintest glimmer in the sleeping house. Still carrying the axe, which he they found out later he got um, from the coal house. It was leaning against a coal shed on the backyard. So it was their axe. It was their axe. The stranger walked past one bedroom. Now, I mean, I guess a reconstruction to do this. The stranger walked past one bedroom in which the two Stillinger girls were sleeping, slipped up the narrow staircase that led to the two other bedrooms. Seemingly to know the layout of the home, he walked past the room in which four of the young children, the four more children were sleeping and crept into the room in which Joe Moore lay next to his wife, Sarah raising the ax high above his head. And they know this because he raised it so high that it gorged the ceiling. The man brought the flat of the blade down on the back of Joe Moore's head, crushing his skull and probably killing him instantly. Then he struck Sarah a blow before she had time to wake or register his presence, leaving the couple dead or dying. The killer then went next door and used the act to kill the four more children as they slept. Once again, there's no evidence that Herman, Catherine, Boyd, or Paul woke before they died. The assailant or any of the four children, um, did, they didn't make any sufficient noise to disturb the two girls sleeping downstairs because there was no indication that they woke up and like ran from the house. Killer then took the stairs down, took the axe to the Stillinger girls, and this is a sad thing. The elder, they believe, woke an instant before she was murdered because she had a defense wound on her arm. So he killed the parents first, then the four more children. Then he went downstairs, killed the youngest Stillinger daughter, and then killed the oldest one. What did I say her name was? Lena. Last. And, and she's the one that had the defenses. She's the one who had the defense. Yeah, the defense wound. Okay, and then this, this is what is actually more chilling than the fact that he just killed everybody. But he went back upstairs and then hit them all again. Like reduced, they say, the, this is the words that I read. Reduced the heads of all six moors to a bloody pulp, striking Joe alone an estimated 30 times, leaving the faces of all six members of the family unrecognizable. So killed them, went downstairs, killed the two girls, and then went back and did it again. Like I don't even have words. <laughs> no, and then he did something even weirder. He drew the bedclothes up to cover Joe and Shara's head, and then he found an undershirt, is what he put over Herman's head. And then he found a dress that he put over Catherine's head. And then he found other articles of clothing to put over Boyd and Paul. And then he did the same thing. After he did this, he went back downstairs, rebeat the Stillinger girls, leaving them unrecognizable also. The the one thing is is that was weird that it didn't happen with any of the other girls in the house, which was the only one. And there's only one more daughter. They were all boys. Catherine was the only girl. Lena, again, the one that had woken up. Her nightgown was lifted up past her waist and her underwear were removed. But, and then she had the, this is poor Lena, she had the, the mark on her arm that she had fought back, at least attempted to raise her arm to protect herself. And she had blood, and then she had blood on her thigh. 
So um, I don't know how much she fought back. Someone says that she, another thing that I read, and I don't know how they would know it, said that she ran and hid in a closet and he dragged her out. And that's why like her nightgown was moved and stuff. I don't know how anyone would know that. No. The blood splatters indicated that they were all... In bed? Yeah. After he covered all of them with random pieces of um, clothing or bedclothes, he went around the house and did the same thing to any reflective surface. He covered the mirrors. He covered the windows. The windows, he used skirts and aprons he found in the house. So, like, any pictures that were seen around that had, like, glass frames, he covered those. So anything that was reflective, he covered, including... The windows. The windows, I think, he covered so no one could see what was going on in the house. But that's very ritualistic, I think, mm-hmm. to have gone around and, clo- and and covered everything. The doctors did conclude, though, that, that Lena had not been sexually abused, that they know of. But it, they don't really know. It, it actually gets weirder. He After he covered all the the mirrors and any piece of glass with, glass with clothing or fabric or anything that he could find... He took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and then left it on the floor. And then some reports that I read, and not all of them have this, only some of them, say that he performed some kind of sexual act on the bacon, hmm. on the two-pound slab of bacon. Now, to me, if, if people are going to say that, it would be definitive. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they would have had to have found some kind of bodily fluids to say that that in fact happened. Yeah. So I'm a little, little, little tripped out by that. Um, but he did stay in the house for a long time. They found a plate of food on the kitchen table. They found a basin filled with water that he had evidently cleaned his hands in because it was bloody water. And he left a key ring or some sort of thing next to like a keychain next to the piece of bacon. No one knows. So, it's all very strange. I mean, it was so violent. What he did was so insanely violent. I believe that it probably, I don't know. It had to have, it had to be sexual in nature somehow, right? That someone, I mean, it, it's either passion or It sounds like it's anger. sexually natured and it's someone that knew the family. So it sounds That like would have known those girls were there. It's all very odd. Yeah, I mean, they say that, that some people say that he was watching the family in advance. Were they like a known family for something, or they're just like a normal random family? No, they were known. They were. It was a small town of less than five thousand people. But were they the like? He was owners of anything. Yeah, he was successful. He ran a um, farming equipment business. So I mean, he definitely could afford. It was a really tiny house too, and we'll have a picture of it on our website. But it wasn't a big house. It was a very small little house. But they, I mean, they weren't excessively wealthy, but they weren't poor either. They weren't struggling either. The Moore family was not discovered until several hours later when a neighbor, um, whose name was Mary Peckham, worried that she didn't see any sign of life. The household was normally, like, very loud. Like, they had four kids and two kids spending the night. And the parents, the dad was up early to go to work. And it was a Monday morning. So the neighbor was out hanging her laundry and was like, where where are they? Like, why are they not up around? Why aren't they running around? So she got concerned and called Josiah. By the way, people call him Joe. Joe's brother, Ross, and asked, told him, like, the your brother's house is really quiet. That's not normal. Can you come take a look? So he got there and he tried to look in the windows. And that's when they saw that all the windows were covered, which actually concerned them even more because that wasn't a normal thing for them to have. Everything normally would would be open. Aside from just the front door being unlocked, normally the whole entire house, the windows would be open, the curtains would be open, like they were just in and out. It was a busy family. And so he got there, was already concerned, and then got there and got excessively concerned when he noticed all the window coverings were covered, all the windows were covered. So he went through his key ring. It took him forever, I guess, that people were talking about how long it took him to figure out the key. So he finally found the key to get into the house. And um, he opened the front door and he barely... So the murderer locked the door when he left? Locked the door and took the keys. I forgot to say that. He locked the door and took the keys with him. When he entered the house, he only got as far as where the Stillinger girls were. He saw everything covered, all the lamps and all the lights covered. He saw the Stillinger girls first and ran back out of the house before even looking for his own brother or his family and called the... This is what's so funny now because we're so... This was 1912... He called the hardware store, telling the employee, who was Ed Sully, to fetch Marshal Henry Hank Horton, 
And Hank arrived at the house about 8.30. So I think it was around 7 o'clock that, that Mary Peckham had, 7 or 7.30, she had called the brother. And then um, the marshal arrived at 8.30. He went through the house and found, as he told Ross when he came out, somebody murdered in every bed. The partially cleaned murder weapon was left leaning against the south wall of the downstairs bedroom where the visiting Stillingers were found. Horton brought along doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Hu and Wesley Ewing, who was the minister of the Moore's Presbyterian congregation. They were followed by the county coroner, who was a gentleman named L. Lindquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams. He was the one who was the first one to examine the bodies and estimate the time of death. When a shaken Dr. Williams emerged, he cautioned the members of the growing crowd outside. Now, this is what would never happen here either. I mean, current day would not happen. He mentioned to the growing crowd outside, don't go in there. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. Many ignored the advice and as many as 100 curious neighbors and townspeople basically tramped through the house as they pleased. Walked there goes around. that crime scene. There, there was right out the out the window the, yeah. anything that they would have found or could have found was complete and this is the the most macabre thing and i and i love macabre like this is why i do this took a piece of joe's skull to what? keep as a keeps <laughs> who did one of the neighbors what yeah took a piece of the skull that's yeah. creepy i know did they look into him <laughs> i know right <laughs> the crime scene was completely ruined as far as as evidence was concerned the next day, the more within, well, this happened on the morning of the 10th, I think. Uh, no, the 11th. Yeah, so the next day, they had to take their bodies to the fire department because um, the fire department was the only building big enough to hold. That many dead yeah, people. they didn't have any place to take them. The funeral service was held in the town square. Thousands attended. National Guardsmen blocked the street as a hearse moved toward the firehouse house where all the bodies were taken. The caskets that had been had not been on display for obvious reasons, were carried on several wagons to the Villisca Cemetery for burial. Their funeral cortege was 50 carriages long. So, to the investigation. The police had few leads. It's is a small town in Iowa, very low crime, everybody knew each other. Um, they did what is called now a half-hearted attempt to search the town and the surrounding countryside, and they even brought in blood bloodhounds, but um, it was not successful. Uh, the crime scene had been so fully demolished that even if they tried to get a scent to a dog, I mean, there's a hundred people that walked through that house. Had already touched everything, and then yeah, a hundred people had walked through the town to get there. So, like the bloodhounds didn't even know what they were searching for. Every transient and otherwise unaccounted for stranger was a suspect in the murders. One suspect was a man named Andy Sawyer. There's not really any evidence to link him to the crime, but his name came off often in all the grand jury testimonies. And the a gentleman, named, uh, his name was Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa. He was a foreman and a pile driver for the Burlington Railroad. And this Andrew Sawyer had approached him at six in the morning in Creston, which is the next town over on the morning that the murders were discovered. Sawyer was clean shaven and wearing a brown suit when he arrived. His shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet nearly to the knees. He asked for employment as Dyer needed and because he needed extra man, he was given a job on the spot. Dyer testified later that evening when the crew reached Fontenelle, Iowa, Sawyer purchased a newspaper and went off by himself to read it. The newspaper carried a front page account of the Villisca murders. And according to Dyer, the gentleman who had hired him, Sawyer was much interested in it. His crew complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on and was anxious to be by himself. They were also very uneasy because Sawyer slept with an axe next to him. He often talked to the Villisca, about the Villisca murders and whether or not a killer had been apprehended. He reportedly told Dyer that he had been in Villisca that Sunday night and had heard of the murders. Afraid of being taken as a suspect, he left and gone to Dresden. He had left and gone to Creston and... Um, because Dyer was suspicious, he turned him over to the sheriffs. Dyer later testified that prior to the sheriff's arrival, he walked up behind Sawyer, who was rubbing his head with both hands, suddenly jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles of wood in front of him. Dyer's son, J.R., testified that one day as the crew drove through Villisca, 
Sawyer told him he would show JR where the man who killed the Moore family got out of town. He said the man had jumped over a box, which he pointed out about one and a half blocks away, and then showed where he crossed the railroad track. JR said that there were footprints in the soggy ground north of the embankment. Sawyer told JR to look at the other side of the car, and he said he would show him where the old tree where the murderer stepped into the creek. According to JR, he looked over and saw such a tree of the track about four blocks away. Now, remember, when he arrived to get the job, his pants were wet up to his knees and he was covered in mud. Sawyer was dismissed as a subject in the case when officials learned that he could prove that he had been in another town in Iowa on the night of the murders. He had been arrested for vagrancy there, and the sheriff recalled putting him on a train to send him away at approximately 11 p.m. that evening. So he couldn't have been there, I guess. But he was the most... He was the suspect that they right off the bat just kind of assumed it was him because they assumed it was someone that wouldn't have known the family now i would assume it was someone that knew the family well then the next suspect is going to really interest you frank jones a neighbor and iowa state senator who was an enemy of josiah moore they were competitors in farm equipment sales what had happened is that when josiah had first moved to the town with his family he worked for frank jones in his equipment, farm equipment selling business, and then ended up going off on his own and opening his own business and becoming a competitor to Frank Jones. There was also a rumor that Josiah Moore was having an affair with Frank Jones' daughter-in-law. So they were enemies, and the the whole thing with the daughter-in-law, the affair with the daughter-in-law was complete um, was found to be untrue or unfounded. But the townspeople still insisted that the Moors and the Joneses held a deep hatred for each other. It was believed by many, including a detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency, that Jones didn't commit the murder, but he hired a man named William Mansfield to kill Josiah and his family. Which I think sounds more likely. You do? Mm -hmm. I think that seems awfully... Random crimes don't happen like that. No, no, no. I don't mean... Then or now. No, but wait. It does. Yo, just wait. You'll be surprised at how mm-hmm. much it happens. To me, it seems awfully violent to go after a competitor in farming equipment and murder his entire family. And not only murder it, but do it so violently and passionately. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not... It doesn't... That you shoot... You know what I mean? You shoot. But that's loud and noisy and I, you have to take the whole family out. I guess. <laughs> Clearly. They had a lot of boys. They were competitors. Okay, so maybe, I mean, maybe it was the sense thing. I don't know. They, the townspeople 100% insist that they, they hated each other. The third suspect is the one that I kind of felt was the most viable just because he had all the different elements that would go into, as if I know anything, would go into someone who would do something like this. His name was Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, but he went by Reverend George Kelly. Reverend, pop- like, Reverend, like a minister, Reverend? Yeah. Yes. No, he was. I, 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 of course, went on ancestry like I always do. And he was, a, he's listed on the, all the census as a minister of the gospel and stuff. So that was his job was. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer as a reverend he he's a really creepy little man i wanted to show you guys a picture of him see what you guys think and the picture will be on our website but you guys tell me it's a creepy little guy he had a history of sexual he looks like a worm he does he's really tiny too (laughs) i guess he's really really little oh he's got a weird shape head well big forehead 
He's just strange looking, right? Just like that one's creepy. more clear. Yeah. He had a history of sexual deviancy and mental problems. He admitted to being in town the night mm-hmm. of the murders and admitted that he had left early in the morning on the 10th. He was a reverend and a son of a minister who was born in England in 1878 and moved to the U.S. with his wife, Laura, in 1904. Was there a picture of him and his wife, Laura? Yeah. Uh, she's tall. Yeah, three feet taller than him. Yeah, really tall. He Three feet taller than him? I mean, he's, Are you exaggerating? I'm exaggerating. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> three feet would have made her eight foot two. Um, he was 5'2 and 119 pounds. She's at least 5'6", though, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, picture. Did you see it, Tress? No, I didn't. She's almost tall. She's like six inches taller than him. There she looks a- like a man. She does a little bit. Oh, my gosh. But she... They look related. She stuck by him through... Those Iowans. All... Iowans. <laughs> I can say that, too, because my family's from there. <laughs> she um, stuck by him through all this. But he had been accused of being a peeping Tom in town. He had uh, asked girls... Like, he had ran an ad for a secretary. And one of them fled... That, that went to work for him fled the house where she was working. And um, because he insisted that she be naked while she was typing. Hmm. So he was a little little, little. jacked up. Yeah. He didn't and want her to steal any papers. He was yeah, to put it in her pocket. <laughs> she he was in town at the time of the murder and then admitted that he left early on the morning of the tenth. He was considered competent and well versed and articulate while on the pulpit but off the pulpit, he had a nervous demeanor, shifty eyes, and often spoke so quickly that he would drool. Whoa. Hmm. <laughs> like, that seems like... That's so funny. The things that you react to. Well, like, it's just weird. Yeah. But, well, and I say drool, but with the way that it was written, um, they said that he would speak so fast that saliva would dribble down his chin. Ew. Right? Yeah. I just said drool. So he was often, again, accused of being a poping... A poping he was often accused, again, of being a peeping Tom. He um, scared the one girl that ran um, that he had asked to pose nu- to type nude. He also was known for asking women and girls to pose nude for him. His small stature and meek personality led many to doubt that he could physically commit the murders. But police believe that he actually did. And the reasons that they did was that he was left-handed, which the police had determined the murder to be from the blood spat- spatters. He also had a history with the Moore family. Oh, and I want to go back. This is really gross. The reason that they know, this is so gross, and apparently it's a common thing with axe murders, is they hit their victims in the head with the flat side. You know how I said it was the flat side of mm-hmm. the axe? Do you want to know why? Because the axe would get stuck in their head. You knew that. You knew that. Why did you know that? How did you know that? It's only common, common sense. sense. But you, I never thought of that, though. And I watched I The Walking Dead, and they get their <laughs> axe stuck in their head a lot. Yeah. So. And it's and always then, a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, now when I, after I know, yeah, because, I mean, I've tried to chop wood before. I mean, not on a regular basis, but it does get stuck in the wood. So that's why they always hit it with a flat side. But going back to Reverend Kelly, he... The police believe that he had done it because, A, he was left-handed, which they had determined the killer was left-handed. And a dry cleaner in a nearby town said that they had received bloody clothing from Kelly a few days after the murders. And he had... This is the dumbest thing, too. He showed up at the crime scene asking police for access, claiming to be from Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard, which is just ridiculous. And why would they be in Iowa? Also, an elderly couple that had met him on the train on the morning of the 10th said he had told them about the murder before it was even known to the police or the public. He also raised suspicion because of his fascination with the case. He wrote many letters to the police and investigators and the family of the deceased. Like, he wrote to the Stillingers and to the to Josiah's brother. Guilty. See, that's what I'm saying about him, is that he did a lot of things that fit in with someone who committed a crime, like going back to the scene of the crime to see it, mm-hmm. being obsessed with the case, reading all the papers, writing letters, trying to talk to the family. That's sort of someone. And he was also known as a sexual deviant, which because of the violence of the crime, I believe had, even if they didn't find any evidence of it, which I don't know how they could after they let a hundred people walk through there. I believe that it was of sexual, a sexual nature. There was definitely a passion behind it. Um, and I don't, 
think you have to be a strong person to swing an axe if around. Yeah, if you're a wackadoo anyways. I mean, yeah, like got he some could, kind of weird strength from... Yeah. Well, and even, he was attacking sleeping people. Yeah, even at this... It's not like he was... Yeah, at the size that he was, there's no reason for him not to have been able to do it. Right. The, and six of the victims were children. Yeah, I don't... And he killed the biggest person first. Yeah. And there's a reason why he killed the biggest first person first, because that was the person that could fight back against yeah. him. So I don't know why they... They people dismiss him because of his size, but they took him seriously enough that they, well, they arrested him. Obviously, at one point, a private investigator wrote back to one of the letters that he had asked that he had mailed, asking for details that the minister might know about the murder. Kelly replied with great detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly have witnessed the murders. At one point, he signed a confession. But it was believed that he was coerced into giving that confession. And this is what they did to him. They brought him in um, to jail. They arrested him on suspicion of committing the murders. And they put him in a jail cell. And then for 24 hours, they would bring him out of the cell and then do bad cop, good cop with him. With up to three to four other cops interrogating him at the same time. And then put him back in the cell and then bring him back out. for tw- like Didn't let him sleep or eat for like 24 hours. And then at one of the times that they put him back in his cell and um, there were two other cellies in there because I'm hip. Cellies? cellies. Yeah. Roommates? I'm hip. Cellmates? Two cellmates (laughs) were not really cellmates. One was a reporter from one of the newspapers and one was an investigator from another police department in another town. And they convinced him to confess, saying that it would be easier on him if he did confess. He finally did. He believed them and finally confessed and then immediately recanted. He didn't. He said he did it and then he said he didn't do it. He was tried twice for the murders. They The first time was a hung jury and they tried him again and that resulted in an acquittal. And a lot of people believe that Senator Jones, the one I spoke about earlier, that they say that he hired... The, uh, hired someone to mm-hmm. kill them. They believe that Senator Jones had a big hand in uh, the trial. Um, yeah, in 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 Reverend Kelly getting coerced that the police were being paid under the table to kind of just get him in jail and move on. And As in, like he actually did it, but he wanted someone else to go down for it. Yeah, that he well, well he knew who. No did one's it. saying that he did it. No one's really saying that Senator Jones physically committed the crime. They're saying that he hired someone, that he probably hired someone to do it. And then that's the fourth suspect, technically, is the person that they think that Senator Jones hired was a man named William Mansfield, who ultimately began being referred to as Blackie Mansfield. The reporters named him Blackie Mansfield. He was believed to be a serial killer anyways, and he had murdered his wife, infant child, and parents-in-law with an axe within four months of the, I think it was within a few months of the Velisca crime. He also is believed to have committed axe murders in Kansas and Illinois, both times arriving and leaving by train. The murders were similar in that they were murder- the murderer had used bed sheets to cover the windows, and the murders were committed in precisely the same manner. Several other murders had been tied to Mansfield by Detective James Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency. Another axe murder had occurred just four days before the Moors, um, killing two ladies, and I have their names. Two women, Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller, had been killed. Both Where of them were they killed at? In, I want to say Kansas. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in Iowa. In each of those murders, a burning lamp with the chimneys off and left, and a basin of water with, blood, with dried blood was found. So the murders were similar in that they were committed with an axe, but there was also the water and the lamp thing. However, at Mansfield, after being arrested, was able to provide an alibi with payroll records showing him in a different part of Illinois at the time of in, in Illinois at, a time, at the time of the Liska murders. However, a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as a man he saw the morning of the murders boarding a train. If his testimony is true, it would disprove the original alibi, and Mansfield was a, so he was arrested and brought to Montgomery County because of the alibi. But because of the alibi, he was released for lack of evidence. So he got let go. The, really the only one. Um, then there was another suspect. Henry Lee Moore was a suspected serial killer also. He's not related to the Moore family. 
He was convicted of a murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders in Villesca, his weapon of choice being an axe also. Before and after the Villesca murders, um, similar axe murders were committed, all of the cases showing striking similarities leading to strong suspicion that some or all of the crimes were committed by an axe-murdering serial killer. Henry Moore ended up serving 36 years of a life sentence and was paroled in 1949. He was never tried or convicted in any other murder. So, those were the suspects. I I go back and forth between it being a serial killer and it being Reverend Kelly. I think it's Reverend Kelly. Reverend Kelly was also, townspeople um, testified that he was seen watching the family from afar and that he um, had been arrested one time for peeking in one of their windows. One of the Moore's windows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was him. I feel like it's hard to believe that there were serial killers. If you're, you're going to say serial killers back then, I'd, why? I don't know. There it was, would be easier to get. That's when there were serial killers. Yeah. I guess because they could get away with it for a lot longer back yeah. then. But um, I don't know. I mean, again, serial killers they usually commit the crimes of passion. Like all that stuff was there. It just seems to me that this Reverend Kelly guy, he had all of it going for him. He was a sexual deviant. He had a history of mental problems. He was in town during the murders. He sent bloody clothes to the cleaners. He was creepy. He was left-handed. He was in trouble for peeping on the moor. Just to me... His wife looked like a man. His And his wife stuck by him. She died before him. She he She died in 1947. He died at the age of 80, which... Are you about to do more math? I'm going to do more math. He was born in 1878 plus 80. So what year did he die? Oh, he died in 1958. But his wife stuck with him all the way, you know, till the time that she died, which was about 10 years before him. He ended up moving to New York and living out his life. I couldn't find any more police records on him. Not that I did not try to try because there's a whole bunch of George Kellys and he probably could have gone by any any portion of his name he had a big old long name yeah but he was still listed in all the censuses being part of the ministry but out of all of them i really feel like out of all of them i really feel like he seemed the most viable out of all of them and you guys agree yeah i think so i think the guy after him i don't remember what you said his name was mansfield blackie mansfield that killed his family with an axe too yeah he could have just been a copycat Murderer. I mean, that happens all the time. But also, it was so long ago. I don't know why, but I feel like an axe would be a common. <laughs> like, oh, for yeah. some reason, it just seems like a common murder weapon. A common weapon? Yeah. Yeah. No, Because everyone so. had one. You were still you had, had to wood have burn, one. Yeah. Wood burning stoves. Yeah. You. The case eventually ran cold and the house was boarded up. The home, originally built in 1868 by George Loomis, was purchased by Josiah Moore in 1903. After the murders, the home remained in the estate until 1915, boarded up. Can you imagine living in the town, the murder house? Like, and seeing it all the yeah. time. Yeah. And it was boarded up for, from 1912 until 1915. And then it was purchased by J.H. Giesman. And then over the years, the home had additional seven additional owners, including the Villisca State Savings and Loan, who had the title from 63 to 71. In 1971, the house was titled to a Kendrick and Vance, who in some fashion remained on the title until 1994 when it was sold to Rick and Vicki Sprague in 1994. A few months later, a real estate agent approached Darwin Lim, a gentleman named Darwin Lim, in hopes of interesting him in the property because at the time he and his wife had owned and operated the Olson Lim Museum, which was located in the town square of downtown Villisca. He ended up it was sort of it was an auction and he lowballed the offer thinking he wouldn't get the house mm-hmm. and it was a ridiculous amount he said he should never have gotten it that someone else should have bought, gotten the house but he did he he won the bid and um originally he and his wife had planned to rent it out like the previous owners had um after it had been boarded up the the owners i don't know other than the if any of the owners actually lived in the house, they'd used it as a rental property and people didn't stay very long. And so when he and his wife were discussing what to do with it, 
they had set it up to be rented out and then decided against it because they had been told that people lasted a couple months every time they moved in and then moved out. So it just seemed like more work to them. So what they did is they went into the house and they completely restored the home to its original condition at the time of the murders. And if you go to the Velisca Axe Murder House website, it'll explain in detail what they had to do to take it back to the original 1912 because they're doing this in 1994. And it like they removed electricity, they removed the plant, they did everything. They took the house completely back to 100 years ago. And they decided to, um, they added it in 1998. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And now it's, I guess it's a museum of sorts. They offer tours and the narrators discuss the murder and the suspects of the murder. But it's really funny, reading an article, um, Mrs. Lim had done an article and they said that she thinks it's a shame that people are more interested in the house because of the macabre part of it, that there was a murder there. Instead of the history of the architecture and the history of the house and how people lived back in 1912, she thinks it's a shame that people are more fascinated by the paranormal aspect of it, which I'm sorry, Mrs. Lim, if you ever actually hear this website, this podcast, that a little hypocritical because their website sells tours where you can go day tours, daylight tours, or you can for just around $400, a group of six, 428. Was that 428? For around $400, <laughs> a group of six can spend the night in the Velisca murder house. And, and come on, she doesn't have, like, outside 1912 Velisca home. She has a giant sign that says Velisca Axe Murder, Axe murder House. Yeah, because so, that's what's going to make money. Yeah, but, I mean, don't act like it's such a shame that people only come here for the yeah. yeah, come on, that's what you're selling. Yeah. So, um, and it was really funny, too. I don't know why I added this to my notes. The website recommends a heavy coat to overnighters in the spring and fall as the house has no electricity or heating, which I thought that was really interesting. And at this point, I mean, the, the, the case is unsolved. There's, it's, it's not going to be solved. I'm always so hopeful whenever I start reading these stories that, I mean, unfortunate, it sucks that the reason why is because in ineptitude, you know, they just didn't handle the crime scene very well. They could have gotten fingerprints. They could have done, he touched everything in the house. Like why weren't fingerprints the first thing that was done? Why wasn't the house locked in, locked down like immediately it was a small just, town. They didn't know how to handle such a crime. And it's, it, these people died and they didn't have to die. And it's just really sucks. And I'm going to let Chess tell the paranormal. A lot of our, not every one of our stories has a paranormal angle. It's part of the reason why we didn't really address it in the whole Elizabeth Short Black Dahlia stories. Because um, unless there's specific claims of paranormal activity, I'm not going to include it in the podcast because... I think that there's already so much. It's not negative. What's the word? Skepticism. Skep- yeah. There's so many skeptics when it comes to paranormal activity. And I feel like it already has such a bad rap sometimes. And I, and, and I don't necessarily believe in every ghost story. I don't. I'm People are always surprised to hear that I'm the biggest skeptic. And like we said before, Tressa and I both belong to a paranormal research team. And I do research. Tressa is more into doing the investigations with them. It always bores the crap out of me. But I I believe that it's a possibility. I believe something, in my own personal belief, it's something that I believe that a more scientific approach to ghost hunting and investigations and stuff like that. And so when we tell our stories, and I know that my my the podcast is called Haunting History, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a haunting portion in every episode that we do. Because unless it makes sense and it goes with the story and I'm going back to Black Dahlia, why we didn't mention the Black Dahlia, the Black Dahlia, the stories about her haunting things is the Biltmore hotel. And people say that they see her on the 11th floor and the 12th floor and they see her in the lobby. I'm calling bullshit on that because I don't believe that she would go hang out the Biltmore hotel. It just doesn't make sense to me. So that's why we don't really talk about it. If it doesn't make sense with our story with the Velasca axe murders, there has been some paranormal findings there. I don't know if they're true. I don't know if they're accurate, but I do know that there's a lot and a, like tons. If you Google it, you'll find a ton. But there is one paranormal story that I really want Trust to share with you. 
So on November 7th, 2000, I'm sorry, 14, <laughs> Robert Larson, 37, a man from Wisconsin, was at the house. He stayed the night there. And I read in two different things. At first, it was just him, his mom and his father were with him. They were doing a paranormal. Uh-huh. But another article says also his wife, his 12-year-old stepson, 9-year-old stepdaughter, and 3-year-old son were also staying at the house. Yeah, I heard it was a group of them. Yeah. Tending to go ghost hunting. Yes, right? they were a paranormal team, and they did that on occasion. So shortly after midnight, around the same time that the murder... Um, they had predict- that determined the murders had happened. So, like, had drug. happened. Um, the police were called, and Robert was found. He had a stab wound to his chest and he was in critical condition he was flown to creighton hospital in omaha nebraska um they determined that the stab wound was a self-inflicted stab wound he doesn't know why he did it i don't think there's any memory he also hasn't done any interviews so this is all coming from other people um but this um article from redoakexpress.com he claimed to be a ghost hunter, though, not just this wasn't like his first experience. No. He had done this in other places. Yeah, he was. He was known by his friends and family as Buck, and um, he had suffered some several mini strokes and had some brain damage as well prior to this happening. But most people claim that it was paranormal, that he was taken so, over... By someone else before he went to this place? No. When he stabbed himself. Yeah, so afterwards, it seems that he went from, they say, he went from a hardworking, contributing member to society to a man regulated to using a walker, sleeping in a bed with toddler guardrails, and requiring five or more. He had gone from a hardworking, contributing member of society to a man regulated to using a walker, sleeping in a bed with toddler guardrails, and requiring five hours of home health care per day. Um, This was after the incident. And um, tests have revealed that he has frontal lobe damage and has had several mini strokes. And that's all since the episode. He was completely fine when he went to the Velasca murder house and then suddenly he was ill and couldn't do anything anymore like he stabbed himself in the room and he has everything i had read said that he has no memories of what happened and he was in the room where the stillingers were he was found in the room where the stillinger was were stabbed hmm. right i mean were killed right yeah, yeah i believe so See, you know, this this is what doesn't make sense to me but before they went there his family was struggling financially so, so you I think don't know. He might have done it for a publicity. Could have been. Um, it says that he applied for disability and that was denied at first. And that was after or before. Oh, it's really hard to tell from this article. It was hard to. You just find little tidbits about this. I know, isn't it weird? Because it was such a significant thing. And there was an article that was written by that the wife, Lim, Mrs. Lim, was interviewed for. And she very tinyly touched the tip of the iceberg she said yes he stabbed himself in one of the rooms he was attending a ghost hunt overnight at the house and that it's never happened to anyone else and they hope it never happens again but he was he the times that he stabbed himself coincided with the times that they believe that murders happen so the people have attached it to paranormal but i don't think he's said enough to say whether it was or not right no I haven't found any interviews with him. A lot of there's um, websites that claim that it's the America's most haunted building that, um, and, and I'm really curious about it. Troy Taylor, who is an, one of my favorite podcasts, um, haunting haunted America. Troy Taylor is, I think he wrote a book. He wrote a book where he has the whole story of the Velasca axe murder, including first to hand accounts of hauntings. So that's a book. I'll, I'll share that because I, I'm enamored with Troy Taylor and um, Cody Beck. So, I'd be interested in going there. Would you go there? I See, would. I I imagine that, again, I'm going to sound like a total ghost hunter again. I imagine if it is haunted, that it's probably, um, and I'm not going to sound, no, no, I'm not going to sound like a ghost hunter because residual. That it's a repeat, like it's repeating itself over and over again. But people claim that they see... People claim that they hear children playing. 
um, children's laughter in parts of the night. They'll hear children's cries and screams and they see a shadow of a man on the stairs and in the hallway upstairs. That's the claims that they have in the house. And I, I don't know. I don't know if, if it, I don't know if it was, if it's residual or if their spirits are still there. It's hard. It's hard to know. It, it was such a violent, violent crime. I mean, well, let's go. It's you about want to go sixty miles from my family's house, so we can go visit <laughs> and spend the night there. I love Iowa. I think I was probably one. Thank you. Um, Iowa is probably one of the most beautiful. Driving through Iowa, it looked like a picture postcard to me. Really? No, it's so pretty. It's like green grass and like just yeah, it one is house. Very green. One house by itself with a cow. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. one cow. Like, I don't know what they're doing with one cow. But it's, my husband and I both were completely enamored. Out of the places that we, I, they drove through, I think I was probably our favorite. It looked like a calendar. Regardless of the findings of paranormal investigators to the Villisca murder house, the facts remain. For years, police and private detective agencies searched for the killer who acted in the dark of night in June of 1912. Was it a single attack or was it a stop in a serial killer spree? Was it a local townsperson or a traveling killer? Either way, it's not likely that the mystery will ever be solved. And I hope that any paranormal investigators who claim to find evidence of the Moors or the poor Stillinger girls work really hard to cross those spirits over so that they can finally rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so please be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Also, you can join our Patreon site for exclusive content, upcoming contests, and information only available to our Patreon members. Visit our website at HauntingHistoryPodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all the social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all our roles and sites. And Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at Amazon.com apply. That's Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Amazon is hiring near you. Start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Earn an additional $2 an hour through April. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Learn more or find a job now at amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.